2007, October 22nd. Today is Lecture 22, Light the Messenger. It's all part of my secret agenda to turn you all into astronomers, at least at some fundamental level. Okay. Well, I don't have your results from your quiz yet, but we'll hopefully have those tomorrow. There's a slight snafu in the scanning. That's why those two guys were scampering out of here. Um, today we're going to continue along with our discussion of the physics of astronomy. We talked a lot last week about gravity, but now we want to turn to the other bit of physics that we need to really make sense of what we see in the sky, and that is to begin a discussion of light and matter, which will constitute most of this week. And today I want to begin by starting with the phenomenon of light, and this lecture we'll call Light the Messenger. The key idea is, and there's kind of a stack of them here, is that light is electromagnetic radiation. It's basically, we can describe light as waves, or we can describe light as particles called photons. We'll walk through each of those definitions here in just a second. We then want to define something called the electromagnetic spectrum. This is the sequence of photon energies that all forms of light can have, from the lowest energy form of light, which turns out to be long wavelength radio waves, to the very highest energy forms of light, high energy gamma rays, and of course, everything along that electromagnetic spectrum in between. We then want to talk about the other, so energy is one of the properties of light, either the energy of the light or the frequency or wavelength of the light. That's what's concerned with what we refer to as the spectrum. The other thing we know about light sources is light sources appear to be bright or faint. There's a lot of light or not. That will lead us to a definition of luminosity versus apparent brightness, how bright something appears versus its intrinsic brightness, how, right, how bright, how energetic it really is. And we'll meet, for the first time, the inverse square law of brightness, the fact that the brightness of a source falls off as one over the distance squared. Finally, another property of light that is very important to us in this class is called the Doppler effect. It basically allows us to measure the relative motion between a light source and an observer because of the shift in either the wavelength or the frequency of light because of their relative motion. And we'll look at this very important to us because, in fact, it's a way to measure the speed of an object very, very accurately at very long distances. So we're going to be starting our discussion about light. This is the principal messenger by which we actually observe and interact with the universe. So why do we care? Well, the primary reason we care is that astronomy is very unlike almost all the other sciences in that we have virtually no physical contact with the phenomena that we are studying. This is different from, say, this is, for example, this is a chemistry classroom. There's always some interesting foul-smelling stuff on the table up here when I come in. Chemists can actually get their hands on the compounds they're working with. The same is true of physicists. Even if you're talking about physicists who deal with subatomic particles, they may not physically get their hands on them per se, but they are able to manipulate them in the laboratory. They're able to collect samples, to measure samples directly. But in astronomy, with very, very few exceptions, we have had no physical contact with the objects of study. We brought back a couple hundred kilos of rocks from the moon. We've picked up rocks that have fallen to the Earth, some of them from interstellar space, or I'm sorry, inter, yeah, interplanetary space, not interstellar yet. <laughs> Nothing that anyone's identified as interstellar yet. We certainly have picked up pieces of rock that have been knocked off the moon. And we've even picked up, picked up pieces of rock that seem to have been blasted off Mars. But for the most part, other than the couple of sample return missions, like returning dust from a comet, we have very little physical interaction with things in astronomy. And yet I'm going to be sitting through this course, and if you go on to take Astronomy 162, to talk very confidently about phenomena that are at vast, from human terms, unbridgeable distances. How do we know what the composition of something is, its temperature, its total energy output, and a, and a whole host of properties? 
And the answer turns out to be that even though we cannot physically interact with it, put it in a test tube, assay it in a spectrograph, weigh it in a spectrometer like a mass spec or something like that, weigh the object by picking it up and putting it on a scale, I can make all of these measurements at very long distances, in fact, all the way to as far as I can see within our universe because I learned how to read the message carried to us in the light that these objects emit. Light interacts with matter in many ways. And one of the themes of this part of the class is to look at the properties of matter and the properties of light and how those two interact that give me this extremely powerful set of tools for measuring things at a distance. But before I can do that, we have to understand what is light? Well, light is electromagnetic radiation. That doesn't seem like much of a definition, so we now have to define what do I mean by electromagnetic radiation? Well, first of all, it is a self-propagating electromagnetic disturbance. In this case, it looks to all sense of purposes like either a wave or a packet of particles that are carrying electromagnetic energy. More particularly, light carries energy at the speed of light. Now, that sounds like a circular definition, and it kind of is, but we'll see in a moment here how this all really begins to hang together. Light seems like a weird, seems like a weird definition of light. You're right. And the reason is because light is actually really hard to understand, even though we all have experience of it from pretty much day one. There are two fundamental ways that physicists describe light. They can describe light as electromagnetic waves. Now I'm being more specific about what I mean by self-propagating electromagnetic disturbance. Or I can describe it as little particles, little bundles of energy we call photons. Now at first sight, this might look like two completely mutually exclusive descriptions of the phenomenon. But in fact, they're the same thing. It turns out that light is not exactly a wave. It's not exactly a particle. It actually has a mixture of both properties. This is a very mysterious way of looking at phenomena, but in fact, it's right at the heart of what we call the quantum view of the universe, the quantum view of matter and energy. So just sort of hang on for a second. You'll see that basically both of these properties exist. Each of these as separate categories actually turns out to be incorrect. They're simply two different faces of the same coin. So let's go through them in order. Let's start with the wave nature of light. This is the first way in which physicists measured light within the 19th century, and they conceived of light as waves. Waves are periodic changes in some medium. Okay, you've all experienced water waves. You can put water waves in the bathtub or a sink, water waves at a lake or an ocean. Basically, you have a self-propagating propagating disturbance in a medium. For example, in the case of water waves, You've got a little bit of water raised above its surroundings. Gravity wants to pull it back down. But as you pull the water back down, that pushes other water up in response. And you get sort of a wave moving along away from the point of disturbance, like where you threw a rock in. Sound waves. You all have experience of sound waves because you can see, hear me yammering at you here. What is happening in, in, inside my throat is I'm vibrating columns of air. I'm dumping energy into the air as basically compression and decompression waves. Those compression and decompression waves travel out in all directions, and they tickle little bones inside your ear, making them push and pull as they are compressed and decompressed by the sound waves rolling past your head. That tickles nerves, and you feel that sensation of sound. They carry energy. I clap my hands together. I've expended some energy. I've dumped it into compression of air and that energy is rolled out and is what's tickling your ears, making you hear me clap my hands. If I set off a small explosion in here, 
you would feel a physical wave coming across you. It's actually the energy from that explosion going out into the room. So a wave is anything that basically carries energy, and it's a wave usually in a medium. We can think of seismic waves through the earth, air waves, sound waves, water waves. But electromagnetic waves are a little bit stranger. They're different from any other wave. In this case, what it is, instead of being undulations in the surface of water or compression and rarefaction in air, it's actually changing electric and magnetic fields that propagate, self-propagates through space. Light is a very mysterious kind of wave in the sense that it doesn't need a medium to wave in. It can move through perfect vacuum, completely empty space. And it does so by basically carrying itself along. This is why light took us so long to figure out. Because people thought, look, water waves need water, sound waves need air, material waves need stuff. So light must have some medium that it moves through. And they had a special name for it. They called it the luminiferous ether, the light-bearing ethereal substance. And they thought that it pervaded all the universe. There is no such ether. It's gone the way of phlogiston theory and caloric and all those old ideas from the 19th century. Because the real answer was, was almost insane. It waves on itself. Now the other piece of this is it moves at the speed of light. The speed of light in a vacuum is this rather long nine-digit number. By definition, that's actually the exact value of the speed of light. 299,792.458 kilometers per second. The reason I can tell you this is the exact definition of the speed of light is because remember, we set our basis of the meter, our measurement of kilometers, is defined in terms of light. So it's the only exactly known, or more to the point, exactly defined physical quantity that we know of is the speed of light. It's exactly this, all nine digits if you ever want to know it. But there's a mysterious property of light. When it travels through a vacuum, this speed is exactly the same, no matter what the wavelength or frequency of the waves. Now that's very different from all other forms of waves that we have experience of. For example, we've got bad weather coming through, we might get a thunderstorm today. You've all experienced thunderstorms. What's the thing you hear? You hear the very sharp, high-frequency crack of the lightning first, followed by progressively lower and lower-frequency sound waves. When you hear an aircraft scream over, you first hear the high-frequency whine of the engine, then you hear the low-frequency thrum that you get of the, of the aircraft moving through the air. That's because high-frequency sound moves through air faster than low-frequency sound. When you get thunder a long ways off, that's why you get the sharp crack after a slight delay, and then you get that slow rolling lower and lower and lower, sort of those gut frequencies. But light doesn't work that way. Light going through a vacuum all moves at C, the speed of light. In fact, the speed of light has its own special symbol, C, all by itself. Red light, blue light, radio waves, gamma rays, they all move at the speed of light through a vacuum. Now, that's not true of light through a medium as we're going to learn in a subsequent lecture. But in a vacuum, the speed of light is the same for all energies, all frequencies, all wavelengths. It's a very unusual property of light. It's the only wave that does this. Why is this the case? Well, I guess one way of putting it is, it's how the universe is wired together. It's actually telling us something about how the universe is wired together that light has this property in a vacuum. Here's a, here's a picture of a wave, it's rolling by at some speed, C, 
And we can come up with a couple of other ways to show you how the light works. One is you can look at how frequently the wave peaks pass a given location, how frequently a, a complete cycle of the wave comes by is called the frequency, the number of waves per second. The other measure of merit of a wave is the wavelength, the distance between wave peaks. And finally, the third figure is, of course, the speed. How fast, are the, how fast is the wave moving? How fast does a wave peak move in kilometers per second? This, these three measurements, wavelength, frequency, and speed, are generic for all waves. Sit by the ocean, watch water waves come through. You can measure how many waves per second, say, come past a dock piling. You could get out there with a meter stick or maybe surveying tools, and you can measure the distance between waves. Is it three feet, three miles, or something like that? And you can measure the wave speed. Are they really fast waves, or are they really slow waves? So I can use these three different numbers, the speed of the wave, and then two numbers, either the wavelength, the spacing between successive wave peaks, or the frequency, how many times it waves up and down per second, how often I see a number of waves pass by me. They're not independent. It turns out that all three of these are related through a very simple formula. The speed of a wave is equal to its wavelength times its frequency. Now, I'm using F for frequency. Often textbooks and other sources will use the Greek letter nu. It's the Greek N. Unfortunately, in most typography, an N looks like a nu looks like a V, and it's very confusing. So to separate them, I'm using F for frequency, lambda for wavelength, L for lambda, and C is the only oddball. It's the speed of light in this particular case. So if I know the speed of light, in this case in a vacuum, and I know the wavelength, I immediately know the frequency. Similarly, if I know the frequency, then I can always derive the wavelength through the speed of light. Now light is, however, a little different than that kind of water wave graphic I just used. Light is a self-propagating electromagnetic wave. Without having to give you a complete course on electrodynamics, basically a changing electric field produces a perpendicular changing magnetic field. A changing magnetic field, however, feeds back on the electric field and causes it to decay. As the electric field decays, the magnetic field decays in turn, but they overshoot. And so basically you have an undulating electric and magnetic field field, so a changing electric field creates a changing magnetic field, which creates a changing electric field, which creates a changing magnetic field, and the thing basically waves on itself. Another way of looking at it is a wave-like electric wave is sitting on top of waving in a waving magnetic wave. And the whole thing is moving to the left in this picture at the speed of light. So it's a very unusual way of looking at a wave. It's a self-propagating wave. It waves upon itself. And this little cartoon shows you the directions of the electric and magnetic fields. Well, there are other properties of light, however, which are inexplicable with light as waves. We can actually describe a lot of the properties of light in terms of this wave picture of electric and magnetic fields waving on each other. But a lot of other properties of light are completely inexplicable, particular certain properties having to do with what's called the photoelectric effect. And in this particular case, light as a wave doesn't work, but light as little discrete packets of energy as particles, or what we call particles of light, or photons, from the Greek word photos, meaning light, is a better description. What is a photon? A photon is a massive particle that carries energy at the speed of light. Now already I thought, well, particles are easy to understand. Just think of light as little BBs running out with different energies. But then I threw a curveball in there, 
They're massless particles. That means you can't stop them. You can't have a handful of photons like a handful of BBs or ball bearings. If you stop them, to stop a photon, you have to absorb all of its energy. When you absorb all of its energy, the photon's gone. There's no rest mass for it to have sitting in your hand. So photons are already, not only was light a special kind of wave, photons are special kinds of particles. They're massless and they move at the speed of light. It turns out to be the fastest thing in the universe is the speed of light. How much energy do they carry? Now we can actually relate back to wave properties. The energy of a photon, E, is equal to its frequency times a constant H called Planck's constant. It's in honor of Max Planck, a German physicist from the late 19th and early 20th century, who was the first person to come up with a self-consistent modern description of light as photons. It turns out that if I have high-frequency light, I have high-energy photons. Low-frequency light corresponds to low-energy photons in exact proportions. Now, this is not an exact analogy, but it helps me think about it, so I'll just help you think about this. Think about a wave. Imagine I'm sitting there, and instead of being electromagnetic waves, I'm going to make waves in water, okay? So I'm going to sit there on the shore, and I'm going to push on the surface of the water, and I'm going to make little waves push out from me. So we get down to the pond, we push it out there, and we bother the ducks in Mirror Lake. Okay? If I've got a fairly low energy, I have a low frequency. I just sort of push gradually every now and then. But a high-frequency wave could be made if instead I go push, 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 push really hard. I wave really, 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 really fast. That's a high-energy activity. So think about it that way. If I want the waves to go twice as fast, I've got to use twice the energy. I've got to make them go twice as fast. It's not exactly what goes on, but it's pretty darn close. So if it helps you think about it, because it helps me think about it is, high frequency is high energy. You're going bam, 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 bam really, really fast. Low frequency is gradual, calm, low energy. If you remember that, you remember most of what you need for the electromagnetic spectrum. The energy is directly proportional to frequency. Twice the frequency, twice the energy. Half the frequency, half the energy, exactly. All H is, is a constant that makes frequency units, waves per second, turn into ergs or watts of power, of energy. Turns out H and C are two fundamental constants of nature, along with G. With C, I describe any electromagnetic phenomenon. Electromagnetic waves move at the speed of light. G for gravity. H for these funny little particles that are also waves, i.e. quantum phenomena. So I've got three of the fundamental constants of nature that describe gravitational, electromagnetic, and quantum phenomena. And they're the fundamental units of those areas. All right. So you can think of light as waves. You can think of light as particles. Which is the right answer? They're both the right answer. Sometimes it's just very convenient to use the wave picture. Like when thinking about radio waves and building antennas, building radio antennas, building car antennas. It's much easier to think of light as waves moving up and down and making electrons move up and down and make currents flow. When I work with visible light or x-rays or gamma rays or ultraviolet, it's easier for me to think in terms of photons arriving and each photon comes in and smacks my eye and makes a chemical reaction go off. 
I can pick whether I treat light as purely waves or purely photons, kind of on context. But the range of photon energies that I have together from the lowest energy photons to the highest energy photons form a continuum of energies. And this continuum of energies we call the electromagnetic spectrum. It's the sequence of photon energies from the lowest energies to the highest energies. The way to think about it is as follows. Low energy photons correspond to low frequency waves. Low frequency waves have very long wavelength. So for example, radio waves, microwaves, infrared. Big waves, low energy photons, low frequency of undulation. But they all move at the speed of light. Low energy does not mean slow physically. A low energy photon moves at around 300,000 kilometers per second, just like a high energy photon. At the other end of the spectrum are the high energy photons. This is the high frequency light with super, super short wavelengths. So high energy equals high frequency equals short, small wavelength. Here we're talking about things like ultraviolet radiation, x-rays, all the way up to gamma rays in increasingly progressively higher energies. So the way to think about the electromagnetic spectrum is simply sorting the photons by energy from lowest to highest. Alternatively, we could take a frequency approach. For example, when we talk about radio waves, we talk about 104.1 megahertz on the radio dial. That's a wave frequency. It's 104.4 million waves per second is 104.4 megahertz. Or at the high energy end, when I talk about x-rays or gamma rays, I might talk about gamma rays in millions of electron volt, which is a f unit physicists want to use for energy. So again, I switch back and forth constantly between wave picture, particle picture, as context demands, and sometimes practice for measurement. So here's a sketch of the electromagnetic spectrum. And this is on a logarithmic scale. The uh, goes as follows. I go from high, this is somewhat backwards. Astronomers love to do stuff backwards, so you've got to get used to it. Highest energy to lowest energy. Gamma rays, x-rays, ultraviolet. A little tiny piece here that turns out to be the visible spectrum of light from blue to red. Infrared radiation below red. Microwaves, like in your microwave oven. Radar, like COP radar or Doppler radar or air traffic radar. UHF, in these days of cable TV, who remembers what UHF and VHF are? Those are, the, those are the broadcast radio bands from analog TV. It's about to go away in about two years. But the same frequency bands are going to be used for digital transmission. FM radio, AM radio, and way down here is something called ELF. Not for little short guys with pointy ears that live at the North Pole, but extremely low frequency radio waves that can actually penetrate the oceans and are used, for example, to communicate with nuclear submarines. The range of energies is gigantic, and I don't even list them up here from high to low. The range of wavelengths gives you an idea. Gamma rays are 10 to the minus 12 meters. That's about the size of an atomic nucleus. X-rays are kind of 10 to the minus 10 to 10 to the minus 8, from hard X-rays to soft X-rays, just before you phase over into ultraviolet. Those are about the sizes of atoms. Ultraviolet to infrared starts getting up to things that are kind of getting to be the size of molecules or really tiny, tiny particles of, of particulate matter. Microwaves, 
Now you're starting to get down to 10 to the minus 3 millimeters. That's a millimeter. I'm oh, sorry, 10 to the minus 3 meters. That's a millimeter. So millimeter wavelengths. For example, millimeter wavelengths and a little bit higher radar, centimeter wavelengths. COP radar works at about you know, 5, 10 centimeters of wavelength. UHF and VHF, how big are those? Well, think how big an antenna is. It's about a meter. So not surprisingly, VHF is about one meter waves. That's about how big an old TV antenna is back in the pre-cable days. FM and AM, an AM antenna is actually up to a kilometer in length. Think about how big radio antennas are for broadcast purposes. Now, some of that height is, of course, to get them up off the ground. But for a long wavelength AM, in fact, a lot of that length is because they're long wavelengths. And ELF stations actually have antennas that are kilometers long in gigantic farms out in the prairies or the deserts. So wavelength increases as the energy gets lower. Now, this top purple curve here is important. This is how transmittive the atmosphere is to this radiation coming in from space. Turns out, which is a good thing, the atmosphere is completely opaque to gamma rays, x-rays, and most of the ultraviolet spectrum. That's good because this kind of radiation destroys molecules and atoms, or at least does really bad stuff to living beings. So the atmosphere is forming a shield. Then there's this wonderful hole here kind of between a gap between atomic processes being important and molecular size processes. Hmm, atom-sized light, molecule-sized light. In between is this little gap, which turns out to be visible light. Then there's this big swath with a few windows, which is absorption by molecules. And so we lose most of the only section, tiny sections of the infrared make it through. We lose most of infrared heat radiation and microwaves through the Earth's atmosphere. And then a gigantic window opens up called the radio window, where radio waves can just get right on through the atmosphere. And then at VHF to FM, the radio window closes, and the atmosphere, or actually more precisely, the magnetosphere of the Earth and charged particles therein becomes opaque to radio radiation again. So it's not surprising that astronomy first evolved where our eyes evolve, where most sunlight reaches us in the visible part of the spectrum. Radio astronomy was the next non-visible light astronomy developed because radio waves reach the ground. If I want to do microwave or infrared astronomy, either I work in very narrow windows in the Earth's atmosphere where the Earth's atmosphere becomes transparent, or I work from space. And if I want to observe ultraviolet, x-rays, or gamma rays, I have to go above the Earth's atmosphere into space. The same would be true if I ever decide to do we ever decide to do radio astronomy at extremely low frequencies, then we'd have to go off to the moon or something far away from the Earth. So this electromagnetic spectrum this is a very rich picture here, covers a lot of ground. But let's pay attention in particular to this very familiar pit of the spectrum, the visible spectrum. The visible spectrum is defined as all the light we can see with our naked eye, without any assistance from cameras or anything else like that. The wavelengths correspond to 400 to 700 nanometers of wavelength, or frequencies, and these are kind of, don't worry about these numbers, about 7.5 times 10 to the 14 to 4.3 times 10 to the 14 waves per second, about 10 to the 14 hertz. Um, I think that's, it's got a name, it's not terahertz. It basically, it's a couple of hundred terahertz, if you want to put that in sort of typical frequency units. The basic colors of, that we sense in the spectrum, color is simply a 
to first approximation is a physiological effect, but it actually correlates well with the energies of the photons involved. From lowest energy to highest energy is red light. The reddest light we can see is the lowest energy light we can see. The most blue-violet light we can see is the highest energy light our eyes can detect. The range of colors is red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet for the main seven div divisions of the, of the visible spectrum, which you can remember through the uh, acronym ROYGBIV. This is not just the name of a funky little gallery down in Columbus's short north. It's the old mnemonic for remembering the order of photon energies in the visible spectrum from red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. The names are purely accidents of our language and history. For example, let's take for just one example the color orange. Orange is the color of, well, those funny round um, orange fruits. What would a Roman have called this color? A slightly yellowish shade of red, because oranges were not known in the Roman Empire. In fact, they weren't known until middle, the Middle Ages when they were brought back from the Middle East. So this color here is an example of where the word is just that. It's just a word. But underlying those words and underlying this order of colors is actually a statement about the electromagnetic spectrum. From lowest energy, longest wavelength, low, longest wavelength, lowest frequency red light, to highest energy, highest frequency, shortest wavelength, violet light. Ultraviolet goes off below at energies above we, which our eyes can work. One of the reasons why is because, in fact, the ultraviolet radiation is absorbed by the surface of our eye and doesn't make it to the retina. It does bad things like, oh, say, blind you by sunburning the surface of your eye. And then at lower energies, infrared is invisible to us because, again, it cannot pass through the eye, at least not easily. Some of it can. But the cells in the eye are not sensitive to infrared light, so we don't register a signal. But I feel it as heat on the face. That's the properties of the energy of light, the range of wavelengths, the wave, range of colors. Another question we can ask about light is how bright is a light source? We, we use sort of qualitative language. Oh, yeah, that's really bright. Yeah, it's kind of faint. But we want to actually quantify this brightness more precisely. What brightness is, fundamentally, is a measurement of the number of photons per second that are being emitted by a light source of a particular energy, for example. I might talk about the total number of photons of all energies. That's a measure of brightness. Or I might talk about spectral brightness. How many photons per second of red versus how many photons per second of green versus how many photons per second of blue and so forth. We'll talk more about fine divisions of brightness or spectral brightness later when we talk about spectra in detail. I mean, actually tomorrow. Tomorrow or the next day. Turns out that brightness has two ways. There's two ways to measure the brightness of a source. The first of these is to ask what the total energy output in photons is from a source. This is a measurement of what we call the luminosity. Luminosity is the absolute number of photons that are pouring out of that source right at its surface, right at its emitting surface. This is an intrinsic property of the source in that luminosity is the same everywhere no matter how far away the source is from you. It's a measure of how much energy it's putting out at the source. But what we see is we always observe light sources from a distance. So it's how bright it appears to be to my eye, and so we call that the apparent brightness. So I almost never talk about brightness without an adjective in front telling me that I'm talking about the apparent brightness 
Or I'll say luminosity, or sometimes you'll see this written as luminosity is absolute brightness. So apparent brightness is how bright the source appears to me as I view it from a distance, as opposed to how much light is emerging from the emitting surface of that, which is the measurement of luminosity. So let's look at these in detail. Luminosity measures the absolute total energy output of an object. For example, I can talk about the luminosity of the sun, how much power is coming out of the sun. And in fact, luminosity L is measured in power units, in measures of energy per second. The usual unit we will use is the metric unit of the watt. So for example, it's not perfect, but it's close, a 50 watt light bulb actually doesn't produce 50 watts of power. It's 50 watts of power dissipation and somewhat inefficient. But you could think of it as a measurement to a first approximation of its luminosity. It's independent of the distance. Okay? It doesn't matter whether I'm standing next to the light bulb or whether I'm standing 10 miles from the light bulb. A 50-watt light bulb is a 50-watt light bulb. A star is a star. How bright it appears, oh, that's different. Better way to putting it, luminosity is an intrinsic property of a light source. It's what it is. It's the quantity we'd like to know because ultimately it's related to the total power source behind that light source, be it a star or a planet or a galaxy or something else. Unfortunately, it's really hard to measure it because I don't get to put my finger into it and see how much power is coming out. I've got to watch it from a distance. And that distance, of course, is apparent brightness, which we often call B for short. Apparent brightness measures how bright the object appears to me as seen from some distance. Okay? B is measured in what's called flux units. Now, instead of being energy per second, it's energy per second per unit area at the point of receipt. So, for example, my eye has roughly an open aperture of about a half a square centimeter. So how much light, how much energy per second enters that half a square centimeter of the eye pupil, I'm cutting off a certain area, brightness. And I measure that flux. This, because it depends upon per unit area, depends upon the distance of the object that's producing the light. Because I'm only picking off a small piece of it, but the light is spreading out into all directions. This is important because this is what we actually observe. This is an observable quantity. And so we almost always work with apparent brightnesses and using the distance, try to back out what the luminosity or absolute intrinsic brightness is. So here's the way that this thing works with area. I've got a light source here and I saw a light bulb. And I want to look as the light bulb shines out. I want to see how that radiation moves out in all directions. Well, it moves out radially into a larger, sequentially larger and larger spheres. At distance, say, one meter away, I might measure the number of rays, the number of photons that cross through this little square here, which has one unit of area. And I'll say that's brightness of one in energy per that many areas. When I go twice as far away, the rays are now spread out into two squared or four of those little squares. Same number of photons are passing out into my cone, but now I'm spreading them out over four times the area, so my brightness is one over four in each square. Brightness is photons, energy per second per area. When I go three times further away, that cone of light is now spread out over three times three equals nine. 
of these little squares. Same number of photons, but now I've spread them among nine squares instead of one. So my brightness is one over three squared or one ninth. Hey, we've seen this before. It's an inverse square law. And in fact, Brightness and luminosity are related to each other through something called the inverse square law of brightness. Luminosity measures total power, but the brightness is how much that total power has been spread out over the surface area of a sphere whose radius is d. The surface area of a sphere of radius d is 4 pi d squared. So the apparent brightness of a source, how bright an object appears, decreases as 1 over the square of its distance away from me. If a source is two times closer to me, if I walk up twice as close to a light bulb, it appears two squared or four times brighter. If I back up and I move two times further away from a light source, it's two squared or four times fainter. It's one-fourth the brightness. So brighter always means increasing brightness. Fainter always means decreasing brightness. So if I'm sitting here at the sun, one astronomical unit away from the Earth, and now I remember I forgot to Xerox the homework off. I'll give it to you tomorrow and have it due the following Tuesday. <laughs> I get a certain brightness of the sun. I go out to Jupiter, five astronomical units away. It's now 1 over 5 squared, or 1 25th, the sunlight per square meter that I get on the Earth. So if I see 1,000 watts per square meter of brightness on the Earth, when I go out to Jupiter, five times further away, I get 1 over 5 squared, or 25 times less, which is 40 watts per square meter. So brightness falls off like 1 over distance squared. It's very important to us in a lot of different ways, as we'll see through this course. Final property of light that I care about is something called the Doppler effect. Talked about light having a particular wavelength, like I might shine red light out. It turns out that the observed wavelength, what I see as the wavelength for a particular light source, depends upon whether it's moving away from me or towards me. This produces a slight shift in the wavelength called the Doppler shift. We experience Doppler shift in any kind of wave phenomenon. Sound waves, for example, a siren or a train horn. If you hear a train coming down the tracks towards you, what do you hear? The pitch goes up as it comes towards you, as it moves away, as it goes away. That pitch up, pitch down, as it approaches and recedes is called the Doppler shift in sound. It also occurs in light waves. Turns out that the amount of the shift and its sign, whether it gets shorter wavelength or longer wavelength, bluer or redder, depends upon the direction, whether the source is approaching you or receding away from you. This effect was first discovered, or at least characterized in sound by Christian Doppler, and it works as follows. Here I have a stationary source of sound and a pair of stationary receivers, a pair of cats, it's a squeaky mouse toy, and it sends out sound waves as basically a rhythmic pattern of air pressure. Both of these cats see the same number of waves per second pushing past their ears and perceive the same pitch. But now I set the, the mouse into motion, and as it moves along, the waves going out behind the squeaky mouse are getting stretched out by the motion, so they pass by the ears less frequently, and so I hear a lower pitch, whereas the waves ahead of the mouse's motion are compressed. They come closer together or pass the ear more frequency, I hear higher frequency or higher pitch. So if something comes towards me, it suddenly goes up in pitch like a siren, as the 
ambulance passes me by, the pitch drops, and I get a lower frequency. This sound analogy works exactly the same in light as it does for sound. If the wave light is moving away from me as the observer, I see the wavelength get longer. I see a redshift. If the source is moving towards me, the waves get pushed closer together. Shorter wavelength is bluer. Bluer shift means a blue shift. So the blue or red color change tells me the direction. The magnitude of the shift tells me the speed. The speed is basically the difference in wavelength divided by the emitted wavelength is simply the velocity divided by the speed of light. I put that in your notes. I'll just flash it up here. We need some examples. Here's an example of the Doppler shift in, in light in practice. Cop radar. Cops carry a handgun, which basically emits 20 to 40 gigahertz microwaves, bounces off the car there. As it bounces off the car, the motion towards the car causes the, wave, the frequency of, the, uh, of it to, to blue shift. The frequency of the reflected microwaves are blue shifted. The device has a computer that compares the transmitted versus received frequency and says, 55 miles an hour, you're busted. Or Doppler radar works the same way. It uses high-frequency microwaves to bounce off wind and dust and rain and other stuff. The strength of the return gives you the amount of precipitation. And you can see that within a few hours, looks like Columbus has got a little bit of weather moving in. So the Doppler shift is very important to us. It allows us to basically measure the speeds of objects. And as I said before at the beginning of lecture, light is the cosmic messenger. It's the way we measure things in the universe, and it codes a tremendous amount of information in it. But to understand that coding, I have to first ask now, what are the properties of matter? And once I've determined those, how do matter and light interact? And those will be the subject of the next two lectures.